tonight, uh, we're tackling a tough question for the church. And we are in this series called Curious, engaging some of life's toughest questions. We kicked it off at Easter time, and we asked the question, can dead people really come back to life? And then the following week, we asked the question, did God really write a book? And we talked on, what about heaven and hell? Last week, Steve Clifford talked on uh, the question of suffering and evil and pain in the world, and does God care? Tonight, we're hitting a subject that I I think is incredibly important for us as the church to have clarity on, to know what we believe, why we believe it, but more than that, to have real compassion. Because we're asking and answering the question, this question, what would Jesus say to someone gay? I mean, I mean, if he was here on the planet, if he was walking around in our modern day and age, what would he have to say on the issues about homosexuality and gay marriage? Because we've heard what the church overall has had to say, and as a result, I first want to begin to the LGBT community and say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the way the church has responded. I'm sorry for the way, quote, Christians have lashed out in ways that are actually evil with signs and blogs and all kinds of other things. And I'm sorry that those of us who are followers of Jesus haven't stood up and spoken up for you. I want to begin that way because it's important, because we need to recognize and realize in this area, in the area of homosexuality, I believe biblically in the way Jesus would respond, we as followers of Jesus have dropped the ball in our culture in the United States. And we've allowed really far right-winged extremists to be the dominant voice in the current conversation and to represent all of us. So we're going to ask and answer this question. What would Jesus say to someone gay? And the reason I put it this way because we had questions come in and they're all about it is, you know, what about gay marriage? What about homosexuality and the church and all these sort of things? I just wanted to ask a better question. I wanted to ask a question that actually moved us to the heart of God instead of uh, us versus them mentality. So let's ask the question, what what about Jesus? Because here's why it's so important, those of us who are Jesus followers in this room. However Jesus would have responded, even if we're uncomfortable with it, is how we must respond. Period. However Jesus responds to the issues of today, however he would have done it, is exactly the same way you and I, as followers of Jesus, need to respond That's it. So let me pray as we dive in. Because the Lord knows I need it as we tackle this t- subject. Jesus, thanks for this moment. Thank you for the gathering and to get to worship and to be with you. I ask, Jesus, you would have your way tonight, that you would speak, 
that you would give us the courage to hear what you're saying to our hearts and the tent of heart to respond to you, God, and that we may be your church, your hands and feet to a hurting and broken world that engages in all the things and messes and hardships of life because that's the way you are. And so, Jesus, would you speak in Jesus' name? Amen. Before we hit the question, though, of what would Jesus say to someone gay, I, I, think, I think we have to unpack something first. Uh, let's unpack why religious people say the things they say. Why do so many religious people, especially religious people in the church, say the things that they say? Why, why is it that after, you know, Sports Illustrated, Jason Collins comes out, courageously speaks up as the first uh, gay man in professional sports in America, and then all of a sudden you have this online litany of religious people, not Jesus people, religious people, bashing him saying all kinds of horrific things. Why, why is it that religious people say the things that they say? If you got your notes, open them up. We're going to do a little bit of work together and, and dive into this. And, and I know some of you, I can just tell by the, the way where, where you're at, you're like, what kind of church is this? You know, you're like, where are you going to land? Well, here, here, just stay with me for the whole time, okay? Just stay with me for the whole time. What would religious people, why do religious people say the things they say? Reason number one is they have a selective reading of Scripture. Now, Scripture, if you're not from a Bible background, a church background, is just simply the Bible, God's Word, the Word of God. And religious people use this selective reading of Scripture. They'll take one part to the, ignoring all the rest of, of uh, Scripture. Now, now, there's one particular passage that, that you'll see on some guy with a bullhorn outside of San Jose State or somewhere else, and he'll use this passage as his keynote passage. In fact, I'm just going to read it for you, but then we're going to dive into the fuller context of the passage. This passage is Romans 1, and it won't be up here. I'll just read the passage for the, you, you run in the slide, and then, then we'll go through it, okay? I'm just going to jump ahead to verse 26, uh, 27. It says, In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations for, with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the dual penalty for their error. And, and you just, what happens is religious people latch onto that, pull that out, says, I'm not that, and so I'm going to be, be antagonistic to everything that is that. See, I'm better because I'm not that. Now, let's look at the full passage, if you will. It'll be up on the screen behind you. I tried to fit it in the notes, but we didn't have enough room because I really wanted you to have this. If you've got your Bibles, open them up. Romans chapter 1. You can do some underlining with us. It starts at verse 18. It says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against what? Not some. Not certain kind. All the godlessness and wickedness of the people who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them. Why is it plain to them? Because God has made it plain to them. 
For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, what are they? His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood what, uh, from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Basically saying, you look around and you say, you know what, I can understand by creation around me that there is a creator. And by the beauty around me, I can understand that he is good and that he's powerful. And that there is this internal longing based on our surrounding that begins to evoke our heart to God, that we can have some understanding of who God is just simply by creation. And he says, by ignoring that, he says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God, uh, the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings, birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. And that's actually, that word sexual impurity right there is actually every kind. So it goes even down to the language of using coarse language to lusting and sleeping around and all those others for the degrading of their body with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve created things rather than the creator who is forever to be praised. So that's what's happening before. Unless you think this group is, is so far behind you that you're so overdeveloped in your theology and way of life, you're like, we don't worship created things anymore. Yes, you do. For some, the thing you worship is out in the parking lot right back there. It's called your car. For some, the thing you worship is the place you go to tomorrow morning. It's called your workplace. For some, the thing you worship is inside the four walls that you sleep. It's called your home. For some, it's maybe even the person sitting next to you. It's a relationship. For some, it is the worship and the idolatry of success and power and pleasure. And we have not grown that much farther. We just get more sophisticated in how we do it. And then the passage comes. He's saying the wrath of God's coming on all things because of this. Not just this one little area, everything. Because of this, God gave them over to their shameful lust. Even the women exchanged natural relations, sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with one another and received themselves the dual penalty of their error. Now, now, in some ways, it would be easier today if this one little section wasn't a part. Actually, there's one other place. If it just wasn't a part of the New Testament, we could just dismiss it and go, you know what, is, homosexuality is, is not just a lifestyle, it's a way of life, and it's just the way made. And yet for us as followers of Christ, we do have to say, we, we, if we're going to say that the Bible is the word of God, then we have to go, okay, God, how you define life is the way life's supposed to work. And so that is unnatural. In fact, the word would be anti-creationism. That it goes against your created order, as all sin does. That homosexuality is actually a sin. And, and honestly, that breaks my heart because I have friends who are gay. And to them, we disagree on that. 
But, but let us not think that tolerance means that we have to agree. Somehow in our culture, that's where it's come to, that if, if I tolerate you, if I embrace tolerance, it means I agree with what you're saying. That is not tolerance. That's agreement. Tolerance is actually when you disagree and yet accept and love the person even though you disagree. That's what tolerance is. By the way, the Bible calls this to something higher than tolerance because that's a really low standard for relationships, right? If you go to your friend, do you like them? I, I tolerate them. Doesn't say much about your relationship. It means that you put up with them. It means that you're not going to lord things over or have your way and say, you have to do it my way. See, see we, can, we can disagree on this and still tolerate and be tolerant towards one another. Still wish one another well. See, Jesus called us to a higher standard. He said, don't tolerate love. <laughs> That's even deeper. Let's finish on. I, I could teach on this passage the whole night. We got a lot uh, further to go. T- verse 28. Furthermore. I love that line. Furthermore. In, in addition to, it's as I'm saying, you won't believe this next part. If you thought the previous four, passage was hard, check this out. Can you believe what they were doing? Furthermore, just as they did not think it was worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips. Any gossips? No? Okay. Slanderers. God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They, get this, get this, check this out. Just don't miss this. Come on. This is how far it's gone. This is how bad it's gotten. Can you believe this? They disobey who? Who's who's there? Anybody? Anybody ever done that? Anybody? Okay. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death. <laughs> do what kind of things? See, see, the selective reading of Scripture says those who practice that lifestyle deserve death. And religious people get all uptight and they woe and condemn people. And he says, no, 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 no. Have you disobeyed your parents in the club? In the club. If you don't use a selective reading of scripture, you're in the club. Have you gossiped? In the club. Have you slandered? Have you talked negatively about someone? In the club. Have you had envious thoughts towards someone else? In the club. You and I, all of us in this room, are in the club. Notice next verse. Chapter 2, verse 1. Notice that it changes from third-person plural, they, to second-person plural, you. Because he's writing to the church in Rome, which is in the middle of just the Rome, which is the center. Uh, actually, when you're talking about homosexuality, uh, the Caesar had uh, married a little boy. And there's all kinds of sexual perversions going on. So, so don't think we're living in some weird society that hasn't been seen. Actually, Rome was way more worse than Vegas than we could ever dream. And he's talking to this church in Rome, 
And all of a sudden, it shifts from they out there, and he's going to say it, and he's going to apply it to you and to me. And he says, you, therefore, have no excuse. Uh-oh. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. It reminds me of the thing, you remember, your mom ever said that, every time you point your finger at someone else, three other fingers are pointing back at you. You remember that? Now you do. <laughs> That's what God's saying. He said, whatever way you're pointing or judging someone else, you are reaping and heaping judgment back on yourself. You're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment, what? Do the same thing. We're in the club together. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such thing is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? See, religious people use a selective reading of scripture because they don't want to read that part. You can have those signs on the sidewalk, but it has to say, me too. It has to say, me too. Me too. I love this last line. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness? Listen to this. Forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. That should change and shape the way we interact with every single human being on the planet Earth, starting with the lesbian, gay, bi, transgender community. Because we have violated this passage as the church in America. See, religious people, they use a passage that should result in the common identification with all humanity. Me too. We're in the club. Guess what? We all sit in a place where we receive the just due penalty of what we've done. And they use it to create alienation and discrimination of certain types of behavior. See, here's what happens too, is, is the selective reading of scripture then allows someone to have the sliding scale of sin. If you begin to selectively read scripture, then you can have this sliding scale of sin. And chances are that you may not, you, some of you are like, yeah, I, I'm there, Ingram, I got you, I, I agree with you. But some of you have bought into this one, by the way. I'd say many, that you buy into that there's big S sin and little s sin. S, not the other one. Gotcha. Okay. We're all good now. That, that somehow there's these big sins over here that if you do them, whoa! And then there's these little sins like, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. Come on. I mean, everybody does it. You know, the little ones over here are like lying and gossip and, and, and some of those sort of things. The big ones, whoa, rape and murder. And you go, yeah, see, there's this, there's this huge disparity between those. And then you have along the spectrum things that you go, go from little to bigger. And you go, well, you know what? As long as I stay over here, I'm kind of good. You know what? I'm doing all right. As long as I don't do some of those things, although Jesus said, you know what? If you uh, say raka to your brother, it's as if you've committed 
murder, if you had hate towards your brother, he's like, well, I'm changing the whole game there, by the way. And we buy into this sliding scale of sin. And we say, on this side, you know what, we're, we're okay, lying, anger, gossip, and then it builds up a little bit, maybe porn and lust and some other things. Then, you know, well, if you're stealing, well, then we have to justify it, right? Well, well, are you stealing because you're hungry? Are you stealing just because you're a jerk, you know, because one's worse than the other? And, and then adultery, adultery used to be on the big sin, but everybody started doing it, so we just slid it back. Said, you know what, that was, used to be really bad, but no one can keep their clothes on and their pants on, and so, you know what, let's just slide it all the way back and say adultery's not that big of a deal because no one's really honoring that one anymore. And then the church, religious people, will take homosexuality, and some will put it all the way up on the big-ass side of it. And then there's, then there's the sins that have slid off the list. You ever notice that? The sins we don't want to talk about anymore, like pride, greed, envy, gluttony. That's one we do not want to talk about, gluttony. Come on, because the problem is, is we're all guilty of gluttony. I mean, I can show you right here. That is an example of gluttony. Overindulgence is what gluttony is. If you want to make a big S sin out of anything, well, you should do pride, and that doesn't even make the list because for us, pride isn't that big. Well, I have to have pride, and God says, James, or no, 1 Peter 5, 5, I oppose the proud. It's like I'd rather you have a porn problem than a pride problem. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You see, the interesting part about this whole sliding scale is God only has one category. He doesn't have this sliding scale. God doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't say, over here, you're worse than over here, although we tend to think that and we then treat people that way. Over here, you're worse than over here. I only do this a little bit because we don't want to identify and say, you know what, Jesus said, all of sin, his category. One, one word, one word, sin. Sin. Notice what uh, Romans 3.21 says. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. What righteousness? To which the law and the prophets testify. The righteous, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. To who? To who? Read it. To who? To all who believe. Circle that word all. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for what? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what? All are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And so this ridiculous question of does Jesus love me and then can a gay person become a Christian is answered with one simple place in Scripture where he says all have sinned. We're all in one category. There's no lesser or greater. We're part of the club. All saved 
by one simple thing, not based on what you can do or I can do, but by, based on what he has already done. Those who believe in Jesus, not those who behave right in Jesus, those who believe in Jesus. Romans 6.23 says this, for the wages of sin is death. Notice the singular sin didn't define, well, these certain sins. It says, the wages of what you and I have done, what we earn, says separation. Separation from God. Sin always brings separation. Separation from one another. But the gift of God is eternal life. See, religious people, they start with this selective reading of Scripture that begins to justify why they can dehumanize people and treat them less than. And it moves because of this sliding scale of sin. Allows us to then go, well, they're those type of people and we're this type of people and we only deal with the little s sin and they deal with the big s sin. S sin. And then they create, religious people do this because they create these little communities with the super standard for statehood. These little closed communities that define whether you're in or you're out by superficial standards, not by biblical standards of the word of God. I don't have time to get into the all behind where this idea between bounded set and centered set comes. But religious people operate with a bounded set mentality. And if you got the image there, the circle is, defines the circle. Those inside the circle are in. And the circle really is the list of rules or behaviors by which you have to behave to be in the group, in the club. And this list changes depending on what group you're a part of. But I mean, old school it used to be don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls who do, don't dance. All these sort of things and just these superficial things that had nothing to do with the heart. See, the goal, the goal is everyone looks and behaves the right way. See, the superficial standard for sainthood creates superficial saints. Why? Because you're afraid to be the real you around them because you might get kicked out of the club. You can't be honest with what you're struggling with. And so you look good on the outside, you smile on Sunday, you play the game, but inside you're dying and know the real you and wish someone would ask you, how are you? And you live bounded. The bounded set is defined by behavior. Jesus talked about religious people like that. He said they're like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, white, painted clean, but there's death inside. Then there's this idea of centered set. It doesn't define things by the boundaries per se. And uh, let me give you this real quick before I move on from the bounded set. We use boundaries or qualifications for leadership at awakening. There is a set degree of boundaries, not for entering the community of God, not for entering, entering relationship with Jesus, but when you want to be a leader, there are clear qualifications for being a leader. Just wanted to give that because some of you are going like, well, where are there boundaries? Yeah, but we're just not making them up at the front. In Acts, they said, don't make it hard for unbelievers to come to Jesus. 
when they're trying to define the boundaries for how Gentiles could come into the family of God. Let's not make it hard for them. Center set actually defines it by relationship. Not by boundaries, per se, or behavior, but by relationship. And so everything is filtered through this idea of relationships. The goal is to help people take a step closer to Jesus. That's it. And if you look up at the screen, you'll notice that there are some people, and this isn't this so true, there's some people that are really kind of close. They would appear like they're going to church and doing all kinds of things, but they seem like they're close to Jesus, but they're pointing away from him. Their hearts aren't close to them. They're actually pointed the opposite direction, where someone way on the outside circle just turned towards Jesus, and so their life may not look quite like Jesus' life, but they've just started to make the first step. And they're turned towards him. See, the reality is, is we focus religious people so much on moral modification and cleaning up the outside. And Jesus wants to do spiritual transformation. It starts with the inside. And the reality is, is the closer you get to Jesus, I promise you, the more you'll look like Jesus. What if we were just more concerned with with their relationship with Jesus instead of their behavior. How would that change the way we lived and act with every single person? Now, back to the question. What would Jesus say to someone gay? How would he respond John chapter 8, verse 2 through 11, we see a showdown between religious leaders and Jesus. And I think in this one picture, we can see exactly how Jesus would respond today if he was walking on this planet to someone in the lesbian, gay, bi, transgender community. Listen to what it says. John 8, verse 2. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, a.k.a. religious people, brought in a woman caught in adultery. Literally, caught in the act of adultery. She's naked. Ripped her out of the act. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, the law of Moses commands us to stone such woman. Now, what do you say? See, they said this woman, they wanted to set her up and catch Jesus. The whole point was, who cares about the woman? Let's catch Jesus. See, the law says this, we should stone her. She's committed uh, just one of the gravest sins. And yet, the Jewish people didn't have the right of execution. Only Rome did. So he'd either be in trouble with the Jewish people or in trouble with Rome. Either way, they thought they had him. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order that they'd have a basis of accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Just got on the ground. Everybody's around. There's a naked woman right in the middle. And it's almost as if he couldn't bear the sight. He was so broken at how people would treat another human being that he couldn't even make eye contact. And he just begins to write. 
It's interesting, this word, everyone's talked a lot about what did Jesus write, and nobody knows. Some traditions, the word literally means to write against an illegal document. Some people think that he began to write the sins of each of the men in the sand there, but nobody knows. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any one of you is without sin, literally, the word without sin means not only without sin, but doesn't even have the desire to sin. Let him be the first to throw the stone. Again, he stooped down, began to write on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. She said, Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. What would Jesus say to someone in the homosexuality who's gay? How would he respond when confronted with the issues of today? There's three people in this narrative here. You got the religious, you got the woman, and then you got Jesus. What's interesting about the religious is they made this woman a public spectacle, covered her with shame and disgrace, declared her guilty, and so she deserved what she was getting. She was a means to promote their own piety. Look at how good we are. Look at how bad she is. All they wanted to do was simply make a point. Blatant disregard for humanity. They believed their position of authority gave them the right to stand over her and condemn her. Then you got the woman. She's naked, ashamed, publicly humiliated, disgraced, alone, completely exposed in every way. Most likely having this great sense of despair and hopelessness. Betrayed, violated, standing in the middle of the scene. And then there's Jesus, who took pity, who sought to reclaim her and not blame her who came to her rescue when no one else did. I love this. Gave her a second chance. You notice how he 
did this, and you'll, you'll read it all throughout the Gospels. You'll see Jesus has this pattern. It says in John 1 that he was the fullness of grace and truth, and that's actually the order in which he responds to people, people who are far from God, because you, you know this, that people who are nothing like Jesus actually liked Jesus, and so for us as the church, people who are nothing like us should actually like the church, but it's not been that way, has it? Because Jesus led with grace and then followed with the truth. Go, there's a new life for you. Invited her into a new life, spoke hope. Staggering, don't you think? That Jesus would say to a woman of loose morales, go and live a life without sin. Go and sin no more. Imagine the hope and the humanity that he spoke into this woman who thought that was the only way she could live, that this was who she was. Jesus always believed the best. He was not only concerned with who you were, but he was so desirous of who you will be. He spoke hope into the hopeless moment of that woman's life. See, what if as Jesus' followers... What if, as Jesus followers, we were more concerned with someone's spiritual orientation than their sexual orientation? Now, i got to be honest. This is messy. The bounded set idea makes life simple. It means you can say yes and no. This makes it messy. And we say, no, we're more concerned with your spiritual orientation, your direction towards Jesus than anything else. Come as you are. Now we'll call stuff a sin. I love it how Steve Clifford was here last week. He says it this way. People are always trying to skin the fish before you catch it. That's what the church has been doing. Why are we trying to put stuff on other people outside the church? What if we were more concerned with someone's spiritual orientation, their relationship with Jesus over and above everything else. This isn't just a homosexual talk. This is a life talk. This is how the church is called to be the church. I remember my first friend that would be uh, gay. Like, I've known, I grew up in Santa Cruz, and so this whole idea, you know, Santa Cruz used to be, I don't know if it is anymore, the lesbian capital of the world. But my first friend my first gay friend was a guy named Nate in Chicago in college. And we became friends, hang out, and he hung out with our group of friends. And his past, I mean, he actually grew up in church and had a really negative, uh, began to struggle with this whole idea of homosexuality within the church and, and told his youth leader in the church, and they kicked him out of the church. He explained it to someone else and an older man in his life and decided to say, well, we, we can find out if you're gay. Let's try some things. As a result, he's deeply hurt, wounded, rejected by the church when all he was doing was asking a question, looking for help, wondering, curious. And we became friends in Chicago. We'd go 
hang out with this group of friends and talk and talk about life, talk about his past. It took time and eventually he began to open up and trust us. And I clearly remember the night. We used to go like, you know, those late night uh, runs in college that you could do and eat the burritos and you didn't feel the results in the morning, you know. Remember that? Remember? That was amazing. Um, I wish I could still do that. But there was this one place, I mean, just the greasiest burrito in town. It's called Tacos Belos. And, uh, I mean, it was amazing. I'm curious what I think of it today. <laughs> but we had Tacos Belos. And we're sitting in the parking lot outside of my college campus. Just having a conversation about life and about God. And in that point in time, I decided it was my role in his life to help him understand that homosexuality was wrong. And began to really define, you know, hey, homosexuality is wrong, this is a sin, you can't do this, and took a medical background, took all these sort of things, and there's some really good resources out there. That was the last night I spoke to to Nate. I haven't seen him since. And it breaks my heart, because in one moment, Instead of pushing him towards Jesus, I just simply tried to make a point. And as a result, I lost influence in his life. Could it be that that's what religious people have been doing, far too concerned with making a point instead of actually making a difference in someone's life and losing influence and simply pointing them to Jesus? See, there, there's two types of people in the church. There's lots of types of people in the church, but there's at least these two types of people. There's religious people, and then there's Jesus people. Religious people are content with making a point. Jesus people are called to make a difference. Religious people are content to sit on the sideline and condemn those who are just not in where Jesus' people say, no, we're going to reclaim, and so we're going to go into the mess, and it's a little hairy, it's a little sticky, and I don't know how it's all going to work out, but we're going to love people and point them to Jesus. Two types of people in the church, religious people and Jesus' people. Question for you. What type of person are you going to be? Moving forward today, you can diagnostic where were you, but where are you going to be? By God's grace, we aim to be a Jesus church at Awakening. Engaging the messiness of life and bringing the forgiveness, love, and truth of Jesus Christ to a hurting and broken world. We aim to be simply a Jesus church. Let's pray. Oh, God. It's so easy to talk about, but when we get down to reality, love is so much harder than tolerance. God, may we be a people so overwhelmed with your love that we go then and love every single person we come along with your love and your grace.
and we simply point them to you. In Jesus' name, amen.